Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Gary Reidstra, a seven-time Oscar-winning sound designer, editor, and mixer, whose credits include Star Wars The Force Awakens, Toy Story, and many of Steven Spielberg's films from the past 25 years, including Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, and this year's Ready Player One. In our episode, we cover a wide range of topics, including Gary's time at Pixar, his career-long relationship with Spielberg, and the emotional role sound has in the audience's experience at the cinema. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Gary, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us. It's really a pleasure. I wanted to dive right in. I am also a student at USC right now, and I know that you graduated back uh, at start of the 80s, the end of the 70s? <laughs> Starting, yeah, I, I graduated in 81, and then I left in 83 because I was afraid to go into the real world. So, But I did want to start by talking about your early beginnings and sound. And I know that right after USC, you transitioned and you began working with Ben Burt who is a legend in his own right in the world of, of sound. I was curious to ask you, what were the early lessons that Ben taught you in regards to how to use sound in a creative way when you guys were collaborating on the first few projects? How did you begin to look at this world of sound with a new perspective? You know, Ben actually had an effect on my approach to sound when I was still a student, because when we were students, the Star Wars films were coming out. And Ben was famous with us because he went to USC and we went, I remember hearing that he recorded the back of a projector for one of the lightsaber elements and the projector was still there. It's not there anymore, but that projector in 104B was still there. So he would go and listen to the hum of the projector and go, my God, it's the lightsaber. So what Ben was teaching us even then was using real life sounds in interesting ways. So recording even what seems mundane, like the back of a motor of a projector and using it in interesting ways. I remember trying to be like Ben when I was a student doing sound and failing completely. So it took me going to Skywalker Sound and seeing how Ben really did it. But even before I met Ben, I was a fan and trying to do things like he did. There are so many projects that we're going to be talking about, but I wanted to take a little chunk of our conversation to talk about your full-time experience. I'm going to be skipping ahead by a number of years, but talking about your experience at Pixar, which you know lasted all the way until Brave in 2012, if I remember correctly, but began already in the 80s working on short films like Luxor Jr. I wanted to dive in talking about your experience at Pixar and specifically the opportunities that working in animation can offer that live action simply can't. And yet, this to say about it, quote, I always advise film students to find an animated film and do sound for that. You have to build an entire soundscape from the ground up and there's no on-set recording like in live action. Most importantly, you're simply not bound by the limits of reality. So I wanted to ask you to begin with, over the years, what have been some of the greatest discoveries creating soundtracks and animation as opposed to live action? And how do you feel that Pixar approaches telling stories through sound? 
you know, Pixar was a great thing for me, and it grew out of Lucasfilm. So that's how I established a relationship with Pixar, because Luxo Jr., which was really the first Pixar movie, but John Lasseter, Ed Catmull were Lucasfilm employees before that. So they were in the same building I was in, so I got to know them then. Ben Bird actually did the sound for a, a short called Andre and Wally B., which preceded Luxo Jr., but I got to do Luxo Jr. because Ben wasn't available. This is also the great thing about careers, is you hope to be mentored by somebody like Ben and then have him be unavailable when something really cool comes along like Luxo Jr. So that's very key. <laughs> Timing. I was a big fan of animation, especially Chuck Jones and Warner Brothers cartoons and, and the Roadrunner cartoons in particular. And I think even before I became a sound person, I liked them because they didn't have so much dialogue. They were telling the story and they're getting their gags across with just sound effects, which were done by this guy named Craig Brown, who's wonderful, and the Carl Stalling music and the animation. It was pure. So I love that pure animation technique of, of doing sound. And of course, people interested in sound, you know, it's such an open book to do an animated film because you get to do everything and you have more creative flexibility because you can... You look at the old Roadrunner cartoons and see the crazy sounds that Treg Brown put into those cartoons. They're not literal at all. In fact, I quote this all the time because it meant so much to me, but I talked to Chuck Jones, the director of those ones, and I asked him about Treg Brown, and I said, what was Treg Brown's secret to those great soundtracks? And he said his secret was he never used an appropriate sound. So I, I kind of took that as a, as a mantra for not just animation, but everything. If you do an appropriate sound, in some ways it's boring. If you go a little bit further, you do something different, and you're trying to do something more dramatic and emotional, then you're probably using technically the wrong sound. And a lot of sound design is using technically the wrong sound for the right reasons. And even with Toy Story, once we went into the feature world and, at Pixar... I think sound drove a lot of the ideas for character design and some of the ideas for animation. It, it really did inspire. In fact, the short film that did this the most, that John Laster did, was Tin Toy, which was created as a, as a short film to take advantage of what sound could do. So, you know, we were thinking about the sound for something like Tin Toy before the animation began because the sound in that case, kind of drove what the character could be. So, yeah, animation is rich with possibilities. So it is... I'm glad I said that once. I hope people listen to it. If people are a student and they want to do sound for movies, yeah, you can do your action movies or ambience-heavy David Lynchian movies. Those are great to do sound for. Every movie is great to do sound for, but animation, you'll learn the most. Hello, my name is Bruce. Hello, Bruce. It has been three weeks since my last fish, on my honour, or may I be chopped up and made into soup. You're an inspiration to all of us. I mean... <laughs> Right then, who's next? Oh, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me! Yes, the little Sheila down the front. Woo! Come on up here. Hi, I'm Dory. Hi, Dory. And, uh, well, well, I don't, I don't think I've ever eaten a fish. <laughs> Hi, that's incredible. Good boy. on you, mate! <sighs> I'm glad I got that off my chest. I wanted to begin talking about the first of many live-action projects we're going to be discussing today. It's a big one, and it's Jurassic Park in 1993. 
And to remind listeners, this is the first film that, from my understanding, was exported in the DTS, the digital sound system. And it's a fascinating case study to analyze in regards to how you guys can begin to experiment, make audiences experience a fuller range of a soundtrack. And I wanted to tie this project into asking you about your sound recording experiences, finding the sounds that feel right for a movie. You had this to say about it. Quote, there's a danger in processing sound too much. I believe the best sound effects come from the best raw recordings and are tweaked as little as possible. The world is so full of amazing sounds, so why not find them and use them. Could you tell us a little bit about the sound recording experience on that movie and how you in general try and collaborate with your team to have a large enough range of sounds to work off? Well, that movie, again, taking from Ben Burtt's world, which is some sound people in the old days would try to synthesize sounds or to create them out of computers or something. And in Jurassic Park, we knew we wanted real sounds to make up the sounds of the dinosaurs, say, which meant animals. So we needed to record real animals. The, the key to recording sounds for sound design is to not even, you have a plan, but to be open to anything because you don't know what you're going to find. And, um, you know, the world is full of interesting animals. We would set up recordings and Chris Boys, who is now a great famous sound designer in his own right, was my assistant on Jurassic Park. And he and I, but especially him, would go out. I got him to do things like hang out at a retired lion farm where someone would take, you know, rescue lions that were no longer needed in a circus or wherever. And the lions we heard made an interesting sound in the middle of the night only. So Chris, I talked Chris into camping out in the dark, surrounded by lions in cages where he hoped they wouldn't get out and record this interesting sound. So when you're recording animals, you never know what you're going to get. So I recorded, got some great sounds out of horses and dogs, you know, normal sounds that surround us and it's really how you use them. I mean, my dog was used for all sorts of things in Jurassic Park, including the T-Rex eating a lawyer. It was just my dog playing with a rope toy. You know, you take a a female horse, I was recording a female horse and a male horse just happened to get close to it and the female horse made this horrific scream that was, you know, I didn't expect. It was a horse, female horse screaming like, get that guy away from me. And that became the dying Gallimimus in, in Jurassic Park. And my, one of my favorites was a koala bear at the San Francisco Zoo. They said, you want to record a koala bear? And I said, no, I mean, it sounds awfully kind of cute. I'm not looking for cute. But koala bears, if you listen to them, they make this deep, scary sound that became an element for the T-Rex too. So you have to, you know, be open to what kind of sounds you get from the world and from animals. It's, it really is one of the most fun parts of sound design is searching for new stuff. And you have to keep your mind open to, you know, some odd things you might get along the way that you didn't expect. And then later you take all this recordings and then you start to categorize them into things you might use for the movie. But in the first part of it, you're exploring. You're trying everything, listening and, and recording everything you can to give yourself a rich library to pull from later.
Allow me to ask you about Saving Private Ryan in, in 1998, specifically the big role that Sounds plays in the Omaha opening beach sequence. Once again, one of your quotes. Quote, when it came to the Omaha Beach opening, Steven said, I don't want the sound to feel Hollywood. What he meant is that he wasn't searching for the cliche. He didn't want to use effects from a library. There might have been a lot of cheating in classic war movies, but he wanted to be as true as possible to the memories of what battle was like to the people who were in it. So I wanted to ask you first a little bit about the research process and possibly the challenges of assembling a sequence like the Omaha Beach landing on a sound level. It's important to point out to anyone that the importance of what a director brings to everyone's job on a movie. So it's important to have someone like Spielberg in this case say, I don't want it to be cliched, I don't want it to be... And most importantly, what you just quoted me as saying, being true to the memories of the soldiers who were in those battles. So that's a, an approach that you have to take. And so very different than other movies where I might make, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator shotgun bigger than life, in Private Ryan, we tried to stay true to the, to the A4s and the MG42s and the artillery shells and things. We tried to stay true to the tanks and the real sounds. So the challenge there was to collect a lot of this stuff. And it is amazing, in the world, you will find people with collections of old artillery and guns and, and explosives in a way that is a little scary to think about. But there are people who keep and maintain old equipment from World War II and other wars. So we found a lot of those people, including people with tanks, and recorded, you know, we just, that was about the purity of the recording problem, recording an A4 or an MG42 or an M1 rifle, recording it as well as we could and then, then it became an editorial challenge to cut all the little pieces, because you can imagine sound editing is about control, so you want to cut each thing, including each bullet by and bullet hit and gun, separately, and then mix them together. So that's a lot of cutting. So Private Ryan was, was a sound design job. It's still sound design, but not in the sense of creating something you never heard before. It's sound design and creating, again, the memory of what staying true to what it sounded like to veterans and soldiers who were in that war. So part of the research was me talking to anyone I could who had experiences in that. And what they remembered was so also accurate to the way Spielberg shot that opening scene. It's an opening scene shot from the perspective of people being shot at, not from people shooting. So the memories of people in that kind of battle are not, they don't even hear the guns. They, they remember the bullet buys more than they can hear the guns. And that's what's going to kill you, right? Not the gun, it's the bullet. So that opening scene is about bullet buys and bullet impacts more than anything else. Later in the movie, there's a scene where the Allied, you know, the American uh, soldiers are shooting at the incoming Germans. Now it's about the guns and the distant tanks. So perspective matters. Uh, and again, it, that opening scene was, uh, I can't say enough how important it is for a filmmaker, in this case Spielberg, to make the decision to have no music, despite having one of the great composers at his disposal, and to shoot it in a certain way that felt personal. So you felt like you were there. And then the sound people benefit from good filmmaking, because the hooks for interesting point-of-view sound are built into the, to the very scene.
Perspective is a word you use, and I and I really think it's a key word in describing how you can immerse the audience, both in the opening battle and, and in the ending as well, allowing emotion and empathy to channel into Tom Hanks's perspective, again, thanks to the sound. It blows me away to see how integral sound is to the memories of these soldiers and wonder why do you think sound operates on a far more subconscious and emotional level than audiences may understand. I mean, how do you try to engage an audience through sound in an emotional way? It's funny. And uh, sometimes sound effects people have to kind of um, stand up for the importance of sound in general and in movies in particular. It's really interesting to me because obviously we know music moves us and what's music? Music is sound. Sound, I think everyone knows deep down that sound is a very emotional thing. All sound. And that's what film sound to me is based on emotion. So all I can do is work on the sound for a movie until it's fitting the emotion of the scene uh, and having that effect on me emotionally. That's all I can really do. But I think emotion and storytelling are the two key things with sound, not even more than reality or, or bombastic or impressive. It's about finding those sounds that affect an audience emotionally. Private Ryan was just a great setup. It was those are sounds that are bound to make you feel something because you know it's part of history. It's part of a personal experience. But you know, I think we take it so for granted. Sound that's not music, but sound effects people will tell you that that's a good thing in a weird backwards way. Because if audiences were to sit back and analyze how we build soundtracks, including how we cheat. A lot of the bullet buys in Private Ryan are not really bullet buys because those are hard to record. So we did cheat in some aspects. But if the audience was analyzing it, and I'd say that sometimes audiences analyze visual effects a lot more than they analyze sound effects, and sound effects tend to wash over you and you kind of accept them. And it's the way that we take in the world. If we're lucky enough to be able to see and hear, I think seeing is something that we're always analyzing and thinking about, and hearing is something that we kind of react to more directly, more emotionally, more primitively even. This is why dinosaur sounds scare us because we're geared. Human beings here in 360 degrees, we're supposed to be always listening for the lion behind us, right? So there's something visceral about hearing and something more analytical about sight. This is why as much as I enjoy and appreciate the visual side of filmmaking, the sound part of filmmaking is so rich in the opportunity for drama and emotion and direct connection to an audience in a way that bypasses their ability to analyze what you're doing. I'm curious to ask you about your creative process. I'm hearing you describe all these sequences and I can only begin to imagine what it must be like to work on a film like Saving Private Ryan because there is so much and I was just wondering when you do begin work and perhaps Spielberg does show you a rough assembly, a rough cut or even a picture lock and there's so much to do. How do you like to work? Do you try and go one reel at a time? Do you begin one pass at a time? How can you manage your schedule to achieve so much in a limited amount of time? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I, I think the process, any sort of creative process, is a funnel. You start by just gathering in, you know, ideas, notes, sounds, gathering, and then you start to winnow that down. It's important, when, you know, we have crews, so there's a sound crew, and then one of the benefits of having a sound crew is you can start then saying, you do this reel, you do that reel, you focus on this, you record these sounds, you know, work on the, and you have someone who does maybe the ambiences, so you, you can start divvying up the process that way. But you, you bring up an interesting 
thing to think about for anyone who does sound you know, editing and sound mixing, and that is if you spend too much time on one scene or moment, you will lose perspective. So I find it really important. And if you look at painters or sculptors, I see a lot of the same creative process where it's not working on one detail for a week. It's sort of moving around, working on the whole thing, and then you know, going back to the details. And I bring this up because I see a lot of people do it to me what's the wrong way, which is that I'm really going to perfect this 12 seconds of the movie. I'm going to work on it until it's done and move on. So what you said is interesting. I think it's really important for filmmakers and for film sound people to always kind of work from the outside in, work broader strokes. You know, if you mix, you mix in a whole reel, you just kind of feel the whole thing. And technology has hurt this process because technology allows us to really dial in and do detail work at a level that, you know, I couldn't do at the beginning of my career because there was not the technology. But it's important to keep in mind the broad, think about the whole reel, think about the whole movie, and bounce around, move around. Especially if you're doing loud scenes, you want to go to a quiet scene for a little bit, work on a quiet scene, come back to the loud scene with some perspective. Perspective is important from a storytelling and character and movie within the movie, but it's also perspective is important for the people working on a crew. So you have to cheat. You have to find ways to give yourself some distance and perspective on what you're doing, which means move around, do different parts of the movie. If you're feeling lost in one section, just leave it, do something else. It's a, it's a bit of advice that I've heard that uh, is really important. And for anyone in film, it's an important bit of advice. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your relationship with Steven Spielberg and how he encourages you to use sound as a powerful storytelling device. In describing your process, you had this to say, quote, what's wonderful about working with Steven is that he's incredibly honest about the things that aren't working. I can go a little further and try things out knowing that there's a safety net of trust that he can watch his own movie as an audience member and help guide it to its final form. So I was curious, how has your dialogue with him evolved over the last 25 years? And, and when in production, how does your conversation change from pre-production all the way to the mix stage? It's true. I mean, he is, um, what I said before, is really, I think, a key for a good director, which is to be their own audience as much as possible. It's, again, that perspective thing. He's really good at that. One of the best things about Steven Spielberg movies, working on them, and that he's very articulate, and he will tell you things of what he's looking for, but his movies, if you can use the word, his movies are articulate. So even before I've done anything, I can watch his movies. He's so clear as a filmmaker. You know, it's, it's a cinema school kind of stuff. Where's your eye? What are you focused on? What characters are you supposed to look at? What's the emotion you're supposed to be getting out of it? What's the dramatic flow? What's the twist? All the filmmaking stuff is so clear. And I've worked on enough movies that I know that it's a little too rare for the movie itself to be clear. And as articulate as Spielberg is, his movies are even more so. Our talking about sound before I've done anything is actually, is always useful. He'll give kind of a broad stroke, like, you know, no cliche in Private Ryan, or um, we won't talk it through too much. The movie starts to tell me more stuff. And then where it's really valuable is to play him things. So on Jurassic Park, I would play him stuff really early on to get his reaction. His reaction was more important than us just talking about it. It's funny. You can't sit and talk about sound without wasting your time after a while. You've got to do something, play it, and react. So he is a good reactor. So early on in all these movies, and I remember in AI and Minority Report, same thing. I would play him ideas early to get his reaction. And I know he'll be honest. That's also important for filmmakers. Just be honest, you know, in a nice way. So then we talk about something real that's right before us and whether it works. 
um, and he will, uh, you know, he's an emotional reactor, so he will get, you know, I'm trying to put emotion into the sound. If he doesn't get it, then we change it. You know, the ending of Private Ryan, which is the only kind of stylistically abstract sounds in Private Ryan, was the coming of the tanks. Some of these weird sort of metal screeches and things, sounds echoing through the alleys and the, and the roads in this village, you know, the sound of that, he wanted to be really interesting. And it's one of the things I remember changing the most, because I played him a first pass at it and he didn't like it, wasn't doing what he wanted, and I had to go further. I'm used to going too far and getting held back. This is a moment where I didn't go far enough, and he was honest to tell me that. So he was looking for a certain emotional... And he, he's so good at references, he, he sent me to watch this Michael Caine movie called Zulu, which had a, you know, this British fort that was being attacked by Zulu warriors. And there was a sound in it about you know, the Zulu warriors banging their shields, getting closer and closer to the fort. And I didn't literally copy that sound in Private Rhyme, but I knew what he meant. It's, you know, it's the long, slow, dreading coming for you that he wanted from the tank. So we could talk about it all we want, but what happened there was I did something, I played it for him. In that case, he didn't like it. I tried something else, then he did like it. And so that's the relationship we have. It's a tangible job to make sounds and react to it. And then I do trust his judgment and taste very much. Let me ask you about your creative process in regards, again, as you're saying, sound editing, choosing the sounds that are right for the movie. Because I think that culture and history and the context of stories can inform the way you approach sound. So again, for example, Saving Private Ryan is set during the Second World War. War Horse is set during the First World War. And a movie like Ready Player One, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, imagine a not-so-distant future. So, again, let me re-offer a quote of yours. Quote, After all my years of doing it, I still depend on experimenting, putting sounds against image and seeing what happens. First time I tried this as a film student, it amazed me to how sound could open up a movie, how the combination of sound and visual could create something greater than the sum of its parts. Having a great sound library is essential, but the real secret is how one uses it. So let me ask you in regards to building your own sound effects library, when and how do you go back to it? And when we talk about sound editing, how do you let historical period, location setting, and even genre determine what does or doesn't belong to a specific film? You know, it's interesting. I think every film has a I don't know, personality or tone. For instance, I brought up War Horse is another war movie. You know, we had done a World War II movie, and now we're doing a World War I movie. There's differences automatically there. World War I had a different sound, the sound of whistles and artillery incoming shells and mustard gas and the automatic rifles, you know, the Vickers were a slower rate. And there's more of a primitive, you know, the way you think about World War I is that it's like the first truly technological war, and the technology was a little on the um, cumbersome and um, ratty side. So there's that aspect of it. In addition, if you look at War Horse, War Horse tonally is a very different film than Private Ryan. Private Ryan was trying to recreate in an almost realistic way what it was like to be a soldier in World War II. War Horse is more just the colors of it, the palette, the Janusz Kaminski look of the cinematography. It's more kind of epic cinematic it's got an abstractness to it that allowed, you know, the ambiences and things to be a little bit bigger than life, a little bit more overtly emotional. And it's about horses. So 
every film has its own kind of feeling to it. So I wish I could go into detail about this, but I tell people this all the time. Different movies, you will pick something as simple as a door or, you know, a, a sound effect that seems really straightforward. Each movie has its own kind of feeling of, of sounds. Warhorse had kind of a bigger-than-life, very dramatic feeling. Private Ryan had a very realistic, kind of gritty feeling. And I did two science fiction movies kind of back-to-back with, with Spielberg. One was AI, one was Minority Report. Minority Report was kind of a, a noirish, dark science fiction movie. And AI was like a children's fable, a children's fairy tale version of science fiction. So they have two tones. And when I start to build a library for a movie, I'm checking even the most mundane sounds against the tone of the movie. So Ready Player One, which is the most recent one, the interesting thing there is that within the same movie, there's two radically different tones. You have the kind of um, not so pleasant sounding future in reality, you know, but it feels kind of nasty and brutish and crowded and with in the same movie, you go into this oasis, this world which is created by programmers to sound fun, cool, adventuresome, threatening. You know, it's it's a created sound universe. So that it was a weird way of thinking, but I thought of the oasis inside the the game moments as as if a god was creating the sound of the world, and in the reality part is just everything's kind of random and chaotic and there's little you know sounds kind of clash and trail off and there's a detail to it that in the game everything is controlled and and trying to be cool so every movie and sometimes within the same movie tone matters so tone dictates what kind of sounds what kind of sound approach you take hey curator we figured out the second clue the challenge is here halliday kept track of every movie he ever watched the week and the year he watched it and how many times curator can we see November 23 to 27, 2025? That's the week you went on the date with Kira. Okay, so our options for that week are The Fly Remake, Great Flick, Terrible Date Movie, Say Anything. That would make sense. We gotta remember the clue. A creator who hates his own creation. The Shining. It's Halliday's 11th favorite horror film, and it's based on the best-selling book by Stephen King. Who hated the movie? Hey, no side chit chat. I think we found it. Are you absolutely sure you want to go here? Absolutely positive. Let's hope you have the belly for it. Then let me conclude this little section on your collaboration with Spielberg by talking about Ready Player One and picking out a specific sequence, talking about the New York City car chase. When we talk about sound mixing, which I think is another step to discuss, I'm going to repeat some concepts you presented already. Quote, sound needs contrast and change over time to have effect. To make something loud, you want it to come after a soft moment. Sound allows you to have an off-screen world and tell a story that's happening outside of your field of vision, which by the way, Gary, is why I think you were saying that it can have an effect in in an emotional way, in a subconscious way. So again, when sound and picture come at the movie from two different angles like that, then you make for a better story, close quote. So let me ask you about this car chase sequence in, in Ready Player One. What are some of the creative challenges of that particular set piece? And, and how do you try and elevate your own work done in sound editing once you arrive in the final mix stage? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought That's my favorite scene in Ready Player One. It's such an imaginative scene. Just the scene, not the sound part of it. The scene is so imaginative. And, you know, I find in film, whatever aspect of the film you're doing, 
look for opportunities. And the opportunity in, in that New York car chase is that it's a, it's a scene that has the, uh, that's realistic enough to feel dangerous, but there are moments where you realize, well, this isn't real. But you go back and forth. You know, when, you, when someone gets a car crashes and then a, and a character in the, in the chase dies, they kind of turn into a bunch of coins. So it, that's not the way to die. So you're reminded that, you know, these things are happening. This, this isn't real. But at the same time, you want to feel, you know, during the chase, you want to feel it's real enough that you get the drama of the threat. So it's a tricky thing. You know, you have a scene where, you know, you want to believe it enough that you feel the visceral energy of it, but then King Kong shows up. You know, okay, well, King Kong showing up is not your normal thing. So it's, just, it's playing with your mind. It's a mind game of a, of a scene. So part of our challenge with the sound of it was uh, a lot of the sounds were kind of evocative or sometimes literally, you know, the DeLorean from Back to the Future. We would try to make sound like the DeLorean from Back to the Future. Akira's bike we tried to make cool like in the movie. The challenge in that scene is it's so fast and there's so many things happening. And Spielberg is the best, I think he's the best director at doing action scenes so you can follow the action. A lot of action scenes sometimes come at you in a way that you can't follow what's going on. He's very good at setting it up, but this is, he's operating at 120% on this scene because it's happening so fast and there's so many details visually. So the real challenge in this scene, even more than editing or sound design, was mixing, like you say. Mixing is about making things stand out that have to stand out for the sake of a story point. If you want to you know, focus on the DeLorean in the midst of all these other crashing cars and things, you figure out a way to change the frequency of the other sounds, pull them down, place them stereo image differently so that you can focus on the DeLorean. If you want to make uh, an impact big, you know, contrast again, you pull out sounds before the impact so that the impact feels big in contrast. You can't just keep additively throwing sounds on top of sounds, it starts to go the opposite way and it has no impact. This goes back to a lesson I learned. I really truly learned this lesson on Terminator 2 and James Cameron was really good at clearing out the track when we were mixing a lot of the chases and action scenes in Terminator 2 so that you focused on the key elements and it has, it makes you focus on the story points but it also makes those story point sounds bigger. So it, it, it's a counterintuitive thing in an action scene, the, the more you pull out, uh, the more you clear out of the soundtrack, the bigger the soundtrack feels. On top of which, you know, Car Chase, again, has no music because Spielberg is, uh, it, like, gives me gifts of scenes like that that he knows from the beginning. You know, let's have no music. Just take it away. So that opens the floor a lot for sound effects, but I enjoy the challenge. And the Car Chase in Ready Player One was perhaps the busiest action scene I've, I've ever mixed, so that uh, pushed all my theories about mixing action scenes to the limit. Well, in a scene like that, it's definitely not anywhere near done when visually when we start working on it. So we have to learn as we go. I mean, I'm lucky enough to, I'm in the same company with ILM, so Roger Guyette, who's the supervising visual effects uh, person on the movie, I can at least go talk to him and see what they're up to and, and see what's coming. But it evolves as it goes. And we, um, 
we see things, you know, sometimes we're surprised, like, oh, that's what's happening. So, but even when it's done on this, in Ready Player One more than any other movie, Spielberg himself in the mix would point out things to me that I hadn't seen. There, and there's some Iron Giant scenes in it. I love Iron Giants. Iron Giant, there's some things in the fight where he does, there was one time he, he gets a, an uppercut on the, I think it's Mechagodzilla that he's fighting, and does an uppercut punch. I had no idea there's an uppercut punch going on at this moment until the director pointed it out to me. And then we put the sound in, and then everyone sees the uppercut punch. So there is something magical that happens when you put sound and picture together. And one of the magical things that can happen is it makes you see something because of the sound. So, and Spielberg is very good at, at using and making sure we use sound to help the audience see what he wants them to see. I'm going to begin wrapping things up now. And what is most exciting, I think, looking forward is to talk to you about the evolution of, of sound technology and cinema sound systems. I was smiling when I heard you talk about the fact that knowing that audiences will hear the movie you're working on well inspires you guys to create good work once it's going to be presented in the cinema. You know, we began our conversation talking about DTS in the early 90s, and today we have amazing Atmos systems. So what do you think have been the most exciting developments for sound in the past few years? And what do you think could be the next few steps to immerse audiences on a sound level? When I started my career, you could hear when I started six track sound you know 5.1 lcr two surrounds and a boom you could hear it if you went to a 70 millimeter apocalypse now style presentation but the percentage of people who heard movies that way even in theaters was small so it, it was a revolution that happened even during my career where the percentage of people who heard movies in that you know, apocalypse now style way in theaters became the norm the standard and then on top of it then you have Laserdisc and DVDs coming out. People can hear it at home. And, you know, it's fun. I mean, more speakers is always fun. You have to be careful. You don't want to go crazy, but it's fun. And then people have Atmos at home. It's really nuts. It's great because the percentage of people who can hear uh, the work on a, on a movie well is much higher than it's ever been. And that does affect things. I just went back and remixed for home release Backdraft, a movie I did in 1991. And when we did it in 1991, it was at a time when, you know, a very tiny percentage of people would, in a theater would hear it in its full glory, and no one at home would hear it that way, right? That's the way it was. And here we are nearly 30 years later, people at home can hear it. So we, we remixed. I was so excited to say, okay, this work still holds up. We can do some tweaks. And, but now many more people will hear it the way we, that we wanted to hear it when we mixed it. So that revolution of simply getting good quality sound to as many people as possible is, is the biggest thing. I, you know, more speakers, cool. Digital is cool. There's always a danger on the production side, which I, you know, it's a good warning for students and filmmakers that the, the technology plugins and tracks and can, can overwhelm your creative job because you've got so many possibilities and you start tweaking and dialing and technologically doing things and it takes away from the raw creative idea you have in the first place. So we have to look out for overkill, but I think what a wonderful revolution for sound that by far more people are hearing good sound now than did before.
Backdraft is one of the movies that I wish we could have talked about. Our time is limited, but it's hands down one of my favorite Ron Howard movies. I was really excited going through your resume and seeing that you worked on it. If anyone's listening and you haven't seen Backdraft, please try and experience this on the biggest screen as possible. My last question to you, Gary, is looking back on the role that sound has played in your life and, and again, for your future career. My last quote for this conversation, quote, sound is emotion, not just music, but all sound. I'm grateful for my sound career and working with many of the best directors has given me the equivalent of being in the 50-yard line seats, second row, during a fascinating era in film history. Never forget that there are great sounds all around us and how we use them is what makes for great sound design. Why do you think sound has had such an important role in your life, not just film, but all kinds of sound? What is the conversation like with yourself to discover and experiment still untapped sound possibilities? Well, it does, it does come down to emotion. It's really, it, you know, now you got neurobiologists studying this, which is fascinating to me. There, there are all these books about the effect of music on the brain. No one has written, and someone should, the effect of sound on the brain. And I have no answers for the effect sound has, but I know it does. And one of the experiments that, you know, I sometimes throw out for people who are doing sound production as an interesting experiment is to ask people about the sound memories of their childhood. What, what do they remember from growing up? What are their... What are their memories? What are the sounds that mean something to them? And everyone will have different ones, but sound, it, it's a way of us emotionally taking in the world. And um, sound designers for movies benefit from the fact that I think audiences don't say that out loud, but sound people know it's true. You know that sound is a way of connecting. And you think about sound is physically moves your body in a way that vision doesn't. It, it, it resonates in our body. And then I'm always fascinated to explore. And there are ways to explore beyond film. I've done museum pieces and other things to explore you know, what effect does sound have on us. I have no answers except for it's really fun to keep trying and seeing what things affect people in, in ways you can't even predict, but still wide open. That's why I tell people who are interested in sound for film, there's a long ways to go and many more things to discover. It's not done. There's It's a big open field ahead of you if you're interested in this so dive right in gary i can't thank you enough for coming on the show it's been such an honor and again best of luck for the projects you have just worked on and the projects you're about to begin thank you my pleasure and there you have it folks i would like to thank gary for sharing his time to record this episode if you like the podcast please take a moment to subscribe rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Share it with your friends as it helps us bring you month after month conversations with wonderful guests. A special thank you to Eric Boss with whom I shared this passion project and without whom none of this could be happening. Thanks again and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I'm Brando Benetton and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.